morning we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to look at verses 16 through 25a. Please listen attentively as I read. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, quote, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So read the words of the living God. Our Father, as we gather this morning and consider this text, our souls can only be well because for a time it was not well with your son. And we are eternally grateful. Lord, there may be some in this room today whose souls should not be well because they are not well with you. And I join with my brother Ben in asking, would you bring them to repentance, whether it's for the first time and saving faith, whether it's one of yours in ongoing sin who needs to repent so that their souls can be well yet again. Do your work in our hearts, strengthen our resolve and our faith, and remind us why we're here. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a boy, the church that I grew up in was a, a small church, very much a, a family. 
Uh, and one of the elders was one of our song leaders. We didn't have a, a band. We, it was a Church of Christ, and so we didn't use instruments, if you know anything about the Church of Christ. Uh, one of the elders would lead us in singing, and, and every once in a while he would lead us into uh, some children's songs just spontaneously. And of course, everybody sang them, even the adults, we loved them. And one of the songs was taken directly out of the prophet Micah, Micah 6, 8. And I will forever know Micah 6, 8 because we would sing that song all the time. Uh, I will spare you singing it for you. But Micah 6.8 says, in the King James, which is the version of the song we sang, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth, doth the Lord require of thee. Do you know what it goes, how, where it goes after that? Some of you do, yes. Let me set this up for you. This is a passage where... God is pronouncing judgment on his people. And the prophet takes on uh, two personalities. On one hand, he, he's asking the question, uh, does God want sacrifice? Does he want all of the rituals of the Old Testament? And God says, that's not of primary concern. There is something more important than even the rituals of the sacrifice. And then the prophet takes on the other persona and says, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what God requires. And it comes down to three very simple things. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God says, this is what I want don't pile up your sacrifices to me when your hearts are far from me. What I want is for you to walk humbly, to love mercy. But the first one was do justice. What that means is do the right thing. If you look up the word justice in the Bible, you will see that it is used over and over again as something God loves. And he abhors injustice. He hates unjust scales. It's one of the things in the book of Proverbs that we are told is an abomination to God when someone measures things with unjust scales. He hates it. He says through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, if you're going to boast in something, don't let a rich man boast that he's rich. God doesn't care about that. He's not impressed with your wealth. Don't let the mighty man boast in his strength. But if you're going to boast in something, boast in this, that you know me. And then he explains what it means to know God. He says, know that I love, I delight in loving kindness and justice and righteousness. God delights when people do the right thing. False witness, for instance, is one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant. False witness is not just lying. It is bearing witness in a court setting where you are lying there, and the consequences can be severe for whoever's on trial. If you were on trial 
and someone came and said, I saw him do it. When they didn't see you do it, the implications for you are severe, right? God hates it when people are falsely accused. We've been a couple weeks now since the impeachment ended, and I'm sure you're all waiting for more conversation about the impeachment because we all love that whole process. What a, what a mockery of justice the whole thing was. But there was one person that got my attention, and that was a Jewish scholar named Alan Dershowitz. Many of you probably know who he is. Maybe you watched the hearings. One thing that impressed me about him is he is a liberal. He is a left-wing guy. He very clearly uh, said that he voted for Hillary, and he has no desire whatsoever to do anything nice for President Trump. But he cares about the Constitution. That was his expertise as a Harvard law professor. He is a constitutional law professor. And he was invited by the Trump team to defend the Constitution in the impeachment. And he stood before the House or the Senate and said, here are the charges that have been brought and here's what the Constitution says and what he has done, what he's being accused of, is not impeachable. And he stood there as a man who is not concerned to pick one political party over the other and certainly not to defend the president as a person, but to say, here is what is just. And to go forward with impeachment would be unjust. And for my money, it was a little bit of refreshing honesty in a culture, in a, in a setting where you think, can we trust anybody? I mean, politicians have done this to themselves. I'm sure there are honest politicians, but we certainly have this, this justified skepticism about whether we could trust any of them on either side of the aisle. And when false witness is brought, when injustice is carried out by anybody, but especially those in political power, God hates it. Well, there has never been a politician who's created or who has who's acted in a more unjust way than Pontius Pilate. When I read verse 16 of chapter 19, I get chills and not the good kind. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. This is after, not once, not twice, but three times Pilate declared, this man is not guilty. And then he handed him over to be executed. How do you do that? He didn't care about the victim. He cared about his own political well-being. Imagine treating a human life as just a pawn in your political game so that these people 
don't get you fired by Caesar. I find no guilt in this man, but take him anyway and hang him on a cross. Greatest act of injustice ever committed. And who did he hand them over to? The chief priests and the scribes who represented the people of God. They were the very ones who were clamoring for his execution even though they knew full well he had done nothing wrong. We don't get this from John's gospel, but we get it from the other gospels. They kept bringing in witness after witness after witness to try to level a charge against him that would stick, and they kept contradicting each other, and they kept making stuff up, and when they did come up with something, it wasn't an executable offense, and on, it was just, a, it, was a, it was a kangaroo court. They didn't care about justice. They had to find some way to kill this man, and they did. And so they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his cross. I'm going to try to be restrained in describing crucifixion this morning, but it is just unconscionable that this was ever practiced. I referred to this last week, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, there's some things in that movie that are not great, but the physical experience of Jesus, Gibson got right. That is what he went through. The upright post was already set up at the place of execution. The one who was sentenced to crucifixion would receive the third level of scourging. If you recall from last week, we talked about there are three levels. The first one was the lighter one. That's the one that Pilate gave Jesus before he was sentenced, hoping the Jews would accept that and let him go. But now, though we're not told here in John, we do see this in the other Gospels, now that he has been sentenced to execution, he had to receive the third level, the most intense. And he was so wounded by the, 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 the whipping that we know that he was given the, the cross beam, the patibulum, that is the, 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 the horizontal beam that would be placed on the vertical beam. That's what they had to carry on their own. And we know from reading the other Gospels that Jesus made it out to the city gates and then he collapsed in exhaustion because of the scourging he had undergone. And a man standing there named Simon was forced to carry the cross beam the rest of the way. And then they would take the criminal and lay him on the ground, stretch out his arms onto the cross beam, and use either ropes or spikes to affix him to the cross beam. And they would lift him up onto the vertical post, and then they would use either ropes or spikes to affix his feet to the crossbeam. And on some occasions, they would add a little seat for them to sit on. This was not an act of mercy. 
it was to prolong the torture. Because as you hung there, you would droop down and you would asphyxiate. And so you would take every ounce of energy you could just, could just, just, just voluntar- involuntarily rather, to hoist yourself up to catch a breath. And by putting a little seat there, you would be able to do that longer so that you would suffer longer. We don't know if that was placed there for Jesus or not, but we do know how he was attached to the posts. It was not with ropes. Imagine. So he bore his own cross beam to the place called the place of a skull. The Greek word for skull is cranian. We get our English words cranial and cranium from it. The Latin word is calvaria, which if you have read the King James Version, you know that this is translated calvary there. means the place of a skull. We don't know exactly why it was called place of the skull. Uh, Some think because there's a a certain area uh, still today that if you're far enough away, it kind of looks like a skull, the... uh, the topography there. Uh, it, others think, no, it's just because of the crucifixions that occurred and, and maybe those who were left around. We don't know for sure. In Hebrew, it is called Golgotha. There, they crucified Jesus. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And your minds have to, if you've read the Bible more than once, your minds have to go back at this point to Isaiah 53, where we are told that the one who would come and be crucified would be numbered among the criminals. Jesus himself was innocent, but he was placed there between two lawbreakers who rightfully were executed for their crimes. He was numbered among the transgressors. And Pilate put an inscription on the cross. This was customary. They would always put the the offense, the, the crime on a placard so that everybody who walked by would see what this person had done to deserve this cruel execution. If you were a Roman citizen, you were not allowed to be crucified except in the most extreme cases. That was considered beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen. Roman citizens would be beheaded because it was more painless and more noble in their view. So it was the worst of the worst, and in order to deter others from committing whatever acts had been committed, they would put the inscription on there, this is what the person was guilty of. So if you were a murderer, they would put a plaque, murder. If you were an insurrectionist and had created a resistance against Rome, they would put insurrectionist. So in every language spoken of, Hebrew, the language of the Jews, Roman, the language of the, uh, the soldiers, and the upper class of Roman citizens, and in Greek, the lingua franca, the, the, the common language of all, it had on a placard the crime that this man had committed for which he was being 
crucified. And what was his crime? Being the king of the Jews. Again, the irony, as we talked about last week, Pilate didn't mean it. He didn't believe it. But we know it was true. No, Pilate did it because it was the last dig at the Jewish people. Ha! Your king has committed such a horrible offense, he's crucified. It's your king, Jews. It's your king. Well, the chief priest saw this and said, no, no, you can't put that. Put that he said he was so that everybody knows he was a fraud. And Pilate has had it up to here with these Jews. It says, what I've written, I've written, go away. Every picture you've ever seen or every image you've ever seen of Jesus hanging on the cross always has him covered with a loincloth. That's because our modern sensibilities cannot handle the truth. But the Romans were not interested in preserving a little bit of dignity for those who were crucified. No, on that day, the king of the universe, the creator of these very soldiers, had nails driven through his hands, was lifted up onto a post completely naked, exposed in all of his shame. We know that because that was the custom and because we are told here what the soldiers did with his clothing. It says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And they said, let's not tear it, let's cast lots. So the, the typical garb of an individual at that point would have, uh, in time, would have had, he would have had sandals, so that'd be one. He would have had a belt, that would be two. He would have had some kind of a head covering, that would be three. He would have a tunic, that was the the, the cloak that was worn next to the skin. If you think of it kind of as, a, as an undershirt, but, but doesn't stop at the waist, it goes all the way down. And then some kind of an outer garment. It was the outer garment that he took off, for instance, when he washed the disciples' feet in an act of humility as their king, their Messiah, their Lord, he took off his outer robe and set it down, and he got the bowl that the slaves would have used, and he got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples as though he was their slave. Well, here at his death, he took off all of that and the undergarment, the, the tunic, So, four soldiers, they each took a piece that was part of their compensation for serving by performing the crucifixion. So they had the sandals and the belt and the headdress and the, uh, the outer garment, so one for each of them, but there's one left. 
And normally they would cut it all up into four equal parts and let people use it however they want to. And, and we got to realize, in that day and age, people didn't have a whole wardrobe full of clothes. They didn't have 27 pairs of shoes like some of you with no Y chromosomes have. <laughs> they might have a pair of sandals or two. So this is valuable. They might have a tunic or two, but to have another one, it was worth a lot. To have the material to do different things with, and so they would divide it up. But this one apparently was, was quite expensive. It was all one piece, this tunic that Jesus had. And so they said, oh, we're not going to split this up. Let's just cast lots. Let's, let's throw dice and see who gets it. Good day for you. Bad day for him, but good day for you because you get his tunic. And John tells us this event of casting lots for his clothing fulfilled the scripture, quote, they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. John here is quoting from Psalm 22. Most of the Gospels give us portions of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with those famous words that we know that Jesus spoke from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The original setting was David is overcome by his enemies. He's in hiding and he feels like God has turned his back on him. And so he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Here I am, and these dogs are after me, and, and they're going to devour me. And he says, they're against me. They mock me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They belittle me. They say, oh, you trust in God, David? Well, call upon God, and, and he'll save you. Ha, ha, ha. Where's your God now? And then he makes this statement, they cast lots for my clothing. What is John drawing our attention to with this verse? Psalm 22 was not ultimately about King David. King David, like everything else in the Old Testament, was a picture of Jesus the ultimate David, the final David, the final king who would go through everything that's in Psalm 22, even as David did, only worse. It's fascinating, even down to the details of his clothes would be gambled for by these soldiers. So what does that tell us? If this... If even the, the, the clothing distribution was part of the prophecy, the entire act, the entire event of crucifixion was brought about by the hand of God. Which begs the question, why would this God who hates injustice, 
why would he bring about the greatest act of injustice that has ever been committed? And the answer is because God's justice and our sin were on a collision course. If God is only just and he will only do what justice requires, we are all doomed. Every person in this room has disobeyed God multiple times. And if there is only justice in God, if he only delights in justice, in righteousness, in, in bringing about the right consequences of law, we are all doomed. Thankfully, he also delights in mercy. But God cannot be just and simply turn a blind eye to disobedience. That's not just. There would be outrage and an uproar if all of our courts in our land started practicing the, the, the kind of hearings where the charges are brought against this criminal and the jury comes back every single time saying, yep, they're guilty, but we're going to let them go free because we want to be merciful. If every judge said, you've been found guilty, but I'm going to let you free. Imagine if a president of the United States who has absolute pardon power pardoned everybody. Clear out the prisons. Clear out all the jails. From this day forward, everybody gets a pardon. Well, there'd be chaos and anarchy for one thing. But it wouldn't last long because people would throw all of them out. Because we know that's not right. We want judges and juries and legal systems to practice justice. That's what justice demands, the right verdict. And God as a just judge must punish disobedience. If that were the end of the story, we would all perish. But in his grace and mercy, he formulated a plan even before the world began. He formulated a plan where his son would become a human being. He would become a man. And his son would be perfectly obedient to every law of God, both externally in his practice, in his, in his actions, and internally from his heart. The only human being who's ever walked this earth who could stand before God and God say, not guilty, because he wasn't guilty. And the plan of redemption, the plan of God's grace and mercy that we've been singing about was that that man would suffer 
execution as though he were me, as though he were you. So that then God could declare me righteous and could declare you righteous. And that's why God put his son on the cross. It's our only hope of forgiveness. It's the only hope of anyone for forgiveness. And here's what I know about every person in this room. Not only are you guilty, you feel guilty. You know you're guilty. Everybody knows they're guilty. And the only way to be free of that sense of guilt is to have someone else take our punishment for us. This is the heart of everything. This is why we have crosses everywhere. This is why we wear them as jewelry. This is why we talk about the cross. We sing about the cross. We declare the cross at every, every show. This is why we preach the gospel all the time. Everything else we believe hinges on the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. As you know, this past week, I went to Omaha to be part of the licensing ordaining council for our district as we uh, interviewed several uh, men who were pursuing, who are pursuing ordination. One of those was our own Eric Smith, and he was great. He passed. And for those of you who are wondering, because some of you asked me, was I easy on him? Absolutely not. In fact, I wanted to make sure that none of the other council members thought I was taking it easy on him, so I threw him a couple, I was his mentor, so I trained him, and I taught him, and I set him up for all the right answers, and then I threw a couple questions at him that I hadn't asked and prepared him for, just to put him on his toes, and he did okay on those. No, he did great. And then we, so we have, you know, five pages worth of questions that we ask these ordinands, these, these emerging leaders, and there are sections divided up into heading, and each of us, there's about 10 of us on the council, and we're all given a section of, of questions, and I tend to always be assigned, among others, uh, the, the, the section on atonement and justification and regeneration. And it is somewhat scary to me how often I will ask these men who are well-educated, who are already serving in churches, who are about to be ordained and take on leadership roles in the church, when I ask them, what does atonement mean? And how does Jesus on the cross connect with atonement? And it's scary how many of these men stumble all over the answer to that question. They get their eschatology ducks in a row, Sanctification, church government, alliance polity, the scripture, inspiration, revelation, illumination, all these different theological terms and biblical terms, they get it. But then I ask a simple question, what is atonement and how does Jesus hanging on a cross bring about atonement? It's the most basic question any Christian much less a pastor ought to be able to answer. And sometimes they struggle. 
I mean, they know the, 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 the basics of it. They, they kind of dance around it, but it's, they've never really considered what actually happened on the cross in such a way to articulate it. We get so custom with words and phrases. Jesus died for our sins. Great. What does that mean? Uh, it means he, he, you know, he, he died for, for our sins. Yeah, you can't use the same phrase to define it. What does that mean that he died for our sins? Well, he, he, he went to the cross for our sins. Yeah, that's the same thing. What does it mean? Uh, well, uh, there had to be a sacrifice. Why? Because I got a little animated with one guy this week. Just one. Maybe two. I said, and he was fumbling all over this. I said, how important is atonement to the gospel? He said, it's crucial. I said, and you can't explain the basics of atonement to me? And he couldn't find it in the scripture either. He had, he had no passages to go to. I said, you just told me that atonement and justification are crucial to the gospel, and you can't find those things in your Bible? I said, let's think that through. You realize we are always just one generation away from losing the gospel. As soon as we start assuming it and focus on everything else, oh yeah, everybody knows he, he died for a sense. I don't know what that means, but yeah, he died for a sense. But let's talk about the fun stuff. Let's talk about the exciting stuff. Let's talk about this stuff. As soon as we do that, we are one generation from losing everything. To his credit, he left for that day, he found the passages, he figured out how to define it, he sent me an email saying, thank you, I will never forget atonement and justification and Romans 3 and Romans 5 and Hebrews, and it was great. And I believe he will never forget those things because I embarrassed him so much in front of the council. Shame works occasionally. Beloved, we can be wrong about a lot of things. We can disagree over a lot of things. And we can be ignorant about a lot of things in the Bible, but the one thing we cannot assume or be ignorant of is what happened on the cross. Everything else, we believe in God the Father Almighty, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the return of Christ. We believe in the fellowship of the saints. We believe in all of these things. But none of it matters unless Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. And we must never, ever assume it. We have to know it. We have to believe it. We have to proclaim it. And never, never, never let go of the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified no, he was innocent so that we who deserve to be condemned can be forgiven. Because of that, everything else matters. Everything else matters.
May we never get tired of hearing about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his death, the just for the unjust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I recall the Apostle Paul when he went to Corinth to persuade men to be reconciled to you. He said, I have one message and one message only, Christ and him crucified. Now, Lord, we know there's more to the story. If he died on the cross but didn't come back to life, then it would also be futile and he is our coming king. He's, he's our reigning king now. And, and all that, that we declare in the creed, all that we believe, these things are true. But their significance is bound up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. May this not be merely a mantra for us. Certainly, certainly may it not be jewelry or things on the wall. Lord, make us people who above all else hold fast to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask again for anyone in this room who cannot with a sincere heart profess faith in Jesus, would you grant them genuine faith right now. And for those of us who believe, may we sing out of sincere hearts what we believe. Our Jesus, our, our King, our Savior, it's true. Amen.